0: Hello, and welcome to the Robot Brains Podcast. I am your host, Peter Abiel. On this week's episode, we have deep learning pioneer Jan LeCun. Jan is the Chief AI Scientist at Facebook, Professor at NYU, and of course, Jan is a winner of the Turing Award, which is also known as the Nobel Prize of Computer Science. Back in 2013, When deep learning had just started to break through, Jan was handpicked by Mark Zuckerberg to bring AI to Facebook. At the time, it was a big surprise to see such a big commitment to AI from Facebook or any of the tech giants. For many, and definitely for me, it was a sign of AI leaving a purely academic existence and becoming a driving force in businesses and their products all over the world. In our conversation, we speak about being chosen by Mark Zuckerberg and life inside the world's biggest social media platform. Jan also explains how big tech has become increasingly dependent on AI, so much so that today they cannot live without it. He also offers his predictions for the future of artificial general intelligence, talks about his life straddling the worlds of academia and business, and of course, explains why he likes to picture AI as a chocolate layer cake with a cherry on top. And yes, I am personally a big fan of the cherry. Don't worry if you don't understand the last part yet. It will all become clear by the end of the episode. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. So as we're talking about connecting with people... I'm kind of thinking back to what I thought for me, at least, was a pretty pivotal moment in the AI world. We talked about 2012, the ImageNet moment, but then soon thereafter, 2013, I remember it's NeurIPS, again, the big conference we all go to, and we go there to nerd out. We talk about equations, programs we write, ideas that I would say until then, pretty much nobody cared about except for the maybe few thousand of us showing up at that conference. And, but in 2013, there's this rumor and it's like, oh, Mark Zuckerberg is at the conference, founder, CEO of Facebook. And it's like, wait, what is this? W- what is founder, CEO of Facebook doing at this conference? He's not a machine learning researcher. This is machine learning researchers here. And then I see him on, on the schedule. He's on the schedule for the deep learning workshop. Q&A with Mark Zuckerberg, it says. And then I hear, oh, apparently he's already here. And last night he was hanging out with Jan LeCun and a few other people. I'm just like, what's going on here? And obviously you were hanging out with him. And I'm kind of curious, you must not have met him the first time at the conference. There must have been some buildup towards that. And, and what was that? That whole transition from deep learning, first of all, being largely ignored, then in 2012, being widely accepted as the promising path forward and everybody's starting to work on it after you worked in it for so long. All of a sudden, everybody's following your, your path, not just you, but you and several others, of course. And, but then all of a sudden, industry gets interested. How did you experience that?
1: So funnily enough, there are a few companies that actually were interested in deep learning and convolutional nets before 2012. One of them in particular was uh, NEC, where I worked briefly... In 2002, 2003. And I worked on things like phase detection, pedestrian detection, things like this. And after I left, another person kind of joined called Kai Yu, who basically picked up on a lot of those projects and sort of became a big fan of those convolutional nets. And he got NEC to actually commercialize some products that were based on convolutional nets, like vending machines in Japan that would like recognize your age and gender. So they could, you know, so this was pretty much under the radar. That happened around like the commercialization of those things around 2010, 11 or so. But they've been working on this like for, for longer. There was even a, a spin off of NEC that built like, you know, surveillance like video surveillance systems based on pedestrian, you know, person detection using commercial nets. But I was disconnected from this afterwards. But what happened in 2012 with the ImageNet competition is that it attracted the attention of a lot of people, engineers in industry, and there was a particular group of engineers at Facebook was working on computer vision. You know, it was mostly exploratory because they didn't know what they could use computer vision for, really, at Facebook. They started experimenting with conventional nets and were getting really good results for things like, you know, classifying images, um, figuring out if they were, like, you know, offensive material or not, or doing face recognition, stuff like that. You know, Mark was really impressed by the results. And at the same time, he was going through kind of a, a thought, you know, this was... relatively short time after Facebook became a you know publicly traded company and you know it was you know turning 10 years old pretty soon and you know Google Plus was on the way out so they were not like fighting for their survival anymore. They were basically very well established in the the social network thing. So you know Mark and and Shrep, you know Mark Shrepfer the CTO were thinking about the next 10 years. Like what are going to be the big challenges for us over the next 10 years? And AI sort of came on top. Basically that was like it was going to be a key technology for you know, getting uh, Facebook to move forward.
0: Did they just call? Email you?
1: Yeah. So I met you know some of those uh, some of those guys working on this at CVPR, and then I got a, a video call with uh, with Shrep, the CTO of the company. He, w- he wanted to kind of know first of all, actually, with the manager of that group, Shrinivas, and then uh, with Shrep uh, in the summer, roughly of uh, 2013. We wanted to kind of get the level of land, like what are the cool things? And, you know, what are the things we should be looking for? You know, how do we get into that field? Like, you know, who should we hire? You know, stuff like that. It was more advice. Then I, I had a, a call with, with Mark, Mark Zuckerberg. I get an email, uh, a call from a former student of mine who was working at Google at the time. Mark Aurelio runs who you know, and he tells me I'm being recruited by Facebook. And I tell him, like, why would you want to go to Facebook? They don't have a research lab. You're a research scientist. Why, why would you want to go there? He said, yeah, you're right. And then two weeks pass, and he calls me again, and he says, um, you know, I've talked to Mark Zuckerberg twice. I say, what? You talked to Mark Zuckerberg? He said, yes, and, you know, it's really interesting what they're trying to do. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the job. I'm going to move from Google to Facebook. And so that was a big of a shock because I, I knew Mark really well, and I knew he wouldn't go there unless there was some really definite you know, Will to kind of get into uh, serious research. So he joined at the end of August, I think, of 2013. And then a month later, I get a call from uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Again, a bit like Shrek, kind of wants to get the lay of the land. So I try to figure out, like, you know, how can we move forward? And then he asked me, can you help us? I say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to work for Facebook because I don't want to move to California and I want to remain a professor at NYU. You know, I don't see, see myself kind of leaving this. So, you know, I can, I can help you, but I can't, like, be a Facebook employee, right? It's okay. And then, you know, the company kind of goes into sort of several trials, you know, several attempts at kind of getting this jump started, and then realize after a couple months that the best way they, they have to start a real effort is to hire someone senior and kind of build a, a research lab from the ground up, rather than, say, acquiring a startup or something like that, right? And so I had to go to California for the pre-NIPS CIFAR workshop that you've participated in a few times. And Marco Radio was going there too, so he knew I was going to California. So he said, like, you know, why don't you drop in at Facebook and see what we're doing? He said, sure. And then the next thing is, I got a call from uh, Mark's assistant saying, why don't you come a day earlier and have dinner with Mark? He said, sure. So I get there, I have, you know, one-on-one dinner with Mark at his house, and he tells me what he wants to do. And I find it really compelling. And I realized that he knows a lot about machine learning. He's, he's read everything there is to read. He's read some of my papers, which completely floored me. At Facebook, he... He's sitting, you know, every, nobody has offices at Facebook, right? It's all open desk, right? So there is a little block of six desks. And there is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Schoffer, the CTO. And just across from Mark is Marco Aurelio, who is like the first, you know, AI researcher hired at Facebook. And the reason is because Mark wants to learn about AI. So he keeps you know, coming to, to Mark Aurelio. And at the end of the day, he says, okay, you know, we, we just, we just want to hire you somehow. Like, can you build an AI lab for us? And I said, well, I only have two conditions, which is that I don't quit my job at NYU and I don't, I don't move from New York. And Mark says, sure. is said, okay, what do I sign? It's not like that. It took 24 hours, but you know, uh, <laughs> but like, you know, I was given a chance to create a, a research lab from scratch and I had some pretty, I've thought about this, uh, you know, before because I'd worked in industry before, you know, at Bell Labs and AT&T and uh, NEC.
0: What kind of mandate did you get? Because when you're a professor, you're in charge of everything you do effectively. It's your lab. You do whatever you want. But when you run a lab at a company, well, you're hired by the company. The university hires you and has expectations. It's very different. Your research is completely free. Most of what you do is pretty free. Companies have expectations. Right. So what, what was the mandate?
1: Well, so th- there were very little demands from Mark and Trepp. They were pretty convinced that a research lab would produce something useful in a reasonable amount of time, even if the goals were very long, long-term, and I, you know, I really believed in this uh, too because that's kind of the story of my career. You know, trying to build an intelligent machine, and then kind of working your way back, and whatever you come up with, the first step you come up with turns out to have applications like convolutional nets or backprop or whatever. So I kind of explained that. I said, like, you know, we're going to have very ambitious goals, very long-term, and they wanted that. But at the same time, you know, things will fall out of it pretty easily, and we need to kind of organize this in such a way that this can be picked up and, and be useful for the for the company. But I think there's two things that are really important if you want to this to succeed. One, there has to be a lot of freedom on research scientists on the topics that they pick to work on. It has to be essentially bottom-up. Okay, You can do it top-down, but top-down is more kind of directed research. And it's going to be much more difficult to attract high-quality people in this kind of environment. So if you want to attract the top people, it has to be completely bottom-up. And then the second thing is that the research has to be open. Okay? And I struggled with the openness when I was at uh, Bell Labs. So Bell Labs, you could publish just about anything, but everything had to be patented and you could not open source code. It was like, uh, it was before the time too, but it was really difficult. You have to go through layers of lawyers. It was really difficult. And I said, you know, I told Mark and, and Shrepp, if we practice open research, first of all, it's gonna be much easier to attract good scientists because the, the currency that measures the, the quality of a scientist is or her impact intellectual impact, right? And that goes through publications. You know, that's one reason for publishing. There are other reasons. You know, published research is also more reliable. It's also easier to convince people inside the company that the, the stuff you produce is good if it's published, which is a really strange phenomenon. And so the answer was astonishing but wonderful. It was, oh, you don't have to worry about this at all. Like, you know, we come from the open source world. Schwepp's previous job was, you know, tech lead at, at Firefox. He said, like, it's on our DNA. Like, you know, we open source stuff all the time. You know, we don't even patent anything uh, except for defensive purpose. And even that comes with an open license to anyone who wants to use it. So we never sue people for using our patents. So I said, that's
0: awesome. Fast forward to just a few months ago, and I have a quote from you in the next web that says, you take AI out of Facebook and basically the services crumble. So in 2013, AI got started there. Now it can't work without it. Can you say a bit more about that? A lot must have happened in those years, turning AI from this nerdy research conference kind of activity into real world creation of, of value. And what, what what happened?
1: By the way, that's true of Google as well. Okay. You you take deep learning out of Google today and it crumbled. It's entirely built around it. So, I mean, there's lots and lots of companies that are built on this, but these are the most, you know, the two most prominent ones. So the first applications were, you know, convolutional nets essentially used for image classification and uh, face recognition. So face recognition is really useful because on Facebook, you know, you can you are in a picture that a fr- you know a friend of yours posts, and you get recognized in it, and you you get sent a message. You know, do you want to get tagged? You happen to appear in a picture, so you get this kind of automatic tagging, and you people get alerted whether they are in a picture or not, which is kind of good. So that was probably one of the first deployed application, and then another one was. A kind of internal product called x-ray which was a system that would you know take an image like run a convolutional net, extract the feature vector out of it which is you know basically your long list of numbers and then just store it somewhere and this could be used to tell if the picture contained you know various things like uh you know does it contain people how many people does it contain does it have uh, a car in it you know maybe what's the brand of the car does it does it have like you know weird things like weapons or you know things that are obviously kind of drug related or Is it terrorist propaganda? Is someone getting their head cut off? You know, kind of horrible things that you want to... Sounds like a
0: lot of things that we normally don't see when we're on Facebook, but that behind the scenes, that system is seeing and then maybe removing or something. Right,
1: and it took years before the system was, you know, progressively deployed and actually worked, like to detect, you know, nudity and violence and neo-Nazi propaganda, I mean, all kinds of stuff, right? That are either, and, and, you know, child exploitation. I mean, there's all kinds of horrible things that people want to use Facebook for.
0: Is the bulk of stuff, stuff that just needs to get removed or is it just...
1: Oh, right now it's basically all of it. Like for image stuff, it's basically all of it is AI based. Yeah.
0: All of it gets seen by the AI, but then this is like 90% is garbage that needs to be removed or is it...
1: I wouldn't say 90% of the material on Facebook is is, is garbage. It's not... No, no, I mean, it's, it's still a relatively small proportion that is, has to be taken down, but most of it is being taken down automatically.
0: Maybe because it's taken down so effectively, it becomes less meaningful to post it because it doesn't go anywhere.
1: Right. And people play games, right? So now there's also kind of text understanding systems that try to figure out, you know, is this hate speech? Is this a call to violence? Or is it uh, things that are illegal in certain countries, right? In uh, most European countries, I mean, his speech is actually illegal. It's not, it's not just that Facebook doesn't want it. It's that the government doesn't want it.
0: So uh, is it uh, possible that if you took the AI out, that effectively people who want to post those things would notice it's gone and start f- just flooding?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there are social networks where that happens today, like, you know, 4chan, H- HN, uh, Parley those basically advertise themselves as not regulating content, but they end up being a cesspool of uh, you know, objectionable content. Only in the last year or so, with the progress in natural language processing, basically due to uh, uh, self-supervised learning, you know, Transformers and BERT and things like that, right? That's, you know, some of which originated at Facebook, but you know, some, of, some of those ideas came out of Google, and we exchange ideas. That's the beauty of open research, which is that those ideas actually circulate really quickly. Now, you know, 95% of hate speech or or so is is taken down automatically without anybody seeing it. And this went from, you know, essentially 0% two years ago, maybe 20% two years ago. And then there is translation, you know, translation works really well. So I mean, Facebook is about connecting people. One of the best things you can do is erase the, the linguistic barriers. And, you know, the progress in recent progress in translation have been completely astonishing. I mean, that's probably some, one of the coolest works that has happened in the AI community, in particular at Facebook over the last few years, is the fact that you can train multilingual translation systems that can translate from 200 languages, from you know, any pair, any direction, and those are trained with very little data don't have to go through English or anything. The system can develop their internal representation of language that's sort of independent of the particular language you're using. I I find that really astonishing. There's some really amazing work also by uh, uh, Guillaume Lample and Alexis Conneau, who are actually resident PhD students in Paris, on completely unsupervised translation.
0: What is completely unsupervised translation?
1: Okay, so, you know, I, I explained that there are techniques where you train a system to predict missing words, right? And with those techniques, you can train a system to represent every word by a vector, a list of numbers, right? So you train that for a language, let's say English, okay? And you do the same for another language, let's say French. These are bad examples because there is lots of parallel text in French and English, but let's, you know, let's, let's use that pair for the sake of uh, simplicity. An entire language now is a cloud of vectors. Uh, vectors are kind of like points, if you want. All the words in a language is a cloud of those points right? That has a particular shape. And so English is a cloud of point, and then French is another cloud of point. And now what you're going to try to do is try to kind of transform those two things so that the two cloud of points match, the, the shape basically match, right? So you kind of align them on top of each other. And what emerges out of this is a mapping between English and French. And so now you can build a translation system. It's not a you know, record-breaking one, but it's a decent one. And you never had to use any parallel text of English and French. You never had to have a Rosetta Stone or anything. You just have English on one side, French on the other side, and just the structure of language is such that you can build this translator. I find that absolutely astonishing.
0: That is amazing. And as you go through these things, well, clearly a lot of AI is being deployed at, at Facebook, but Facebook can not be unique in the sense that it's the only company that is deploying AI. Many, many companies out there are, are deploying AI for their own needs. And I'm kind of curious, if in the last few years, if you've seen a shift in terms of really how, even because at Facebook, you're interacting with the CEO of the company, which is very different from typically, as a researcher, you are in your own world, you're not necessarily interacting with the CEO of the company, right? At Facebook are the places where have you, have you seen AI play a much more strategic role in how companies make product decisions or make investment decisions and, and so forth and anything you can share about that?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is not just the sort of default services that Facebook offers, you know, like, you know, ranking the newsfeed, feed, doing ads, translating, you know, filtering, objectionable content, all that stuff. There's also, you know, products that, that Facebook, uh, physical products that Facebook puts out, like the Portal system, which is a video conferencing system. So the Portal system has a smart camera, which is basically a wide angle, high resolution camera, you know, by software, the camera can, you know, zoom on the, on the speaker or, you know, if there are multiple speakers you know, kind of widens and it can pan. And it's basically like a, you know, camera operator. And that uses AI or it uses conventional nets for detecting people, figuring out which way they're looking, you know, all that stuff, right? Then there is another set of products that make heavy use of AI, which is uh, virtual reality glasses. So, you know, inside that tracking of a like, you know, you wear goggles and the goggles has to figure out where you are in the world and track your position accurately. So it can render the world from the right point of view when you move your head. And traditionally, there would be like, you know, cameras, infrared cameras that would be looking at you and try to kind of figure out the geometry of it. But now the way it works is the other way around. You have cameras on the goggles. You don't need anything external. And the goggle looks out and tracks its own position. And that's using kind of, you know, feature detection and all that stuff that some of which is based on... Uh, deep learning
0: what you're touching upon here is also a system that would not be purely in the digital world anymore something i'm personally very excited about this getting ai to work in the in the physical world with with robots or other ways in the physical world this is real-time physical world observations i'm curious if more generally about your thoughts on bringing ai into the physical world I know you've worked on some projects in the past for not car driving per se, but vehicles going across complicated terrains based on vision and so forth. So what do you think, for example, about self-driving cars?
1: Right. I actually have a project on self-driving car. I'm working sort of- Oh, you do? Yeah. It's a project with uh, NVIDIA.
0: Oh, I didn't know you were involved in the NVIDIA self-driving project. That's exciting. So you might have some very yeah, precise thoughts on self-driving cars.
1: It's an interesting story, actually, uh, which I can tell you. When we were working on robotics, this was a DARPA project called LAGER, which uh, you probably heard about. I think you were still a student with Andrew when that happened, and Andrew was involved in this uh, separate project about robotics from from the same project manager. My group at NYU got associated with a small company in New Jersey called Netscale Technologies, where the CEO and founder was a former colleague of, of, of mine at Bell Labs who had worked on commercial nets when he was doing his PhD in Switzerland, Gakko Miller So they were kind of, you know, Netscale was kind of doing a lot of the development for Lager, and, you know, my group at NYU was doing a lot of the sort of upstream uh, research, and it was like, it worked really well. We had a couple of projects like this, and then, you know, the deep learning revolution happened, things started to pick up, and I get a call from Elon Musk saying, you know, we need to build our own sort of AI self-driving system because the stuff we have from uh, Mobileye is not good enough and they don't want to work with us anymore. So, like, how do I go about this? They say, well, you should talk to my friend, or smeller. And then a week later, I get a call from uh, Jensen Wong from NVIDIA who says exactly the same thing. He says, like, we'd like to like, sell our hardware to, you know, for autonomous driving to car manufacturers but we can't sell them anything unless there is a whole stack on it. So we need to build our own autonomous driving uh, stack. How should I do about this? She well, you should talk to my friend, Urs Miller. And so Urs, you know, within a week or so, interviewed both at NVIDIA and Tesla. NVIDIA was just faster so, <laughs> to make him an offer. So he joined NVIDIA and then, you know, he's based in New Jersey. In fact, he's in the very same building that we used to work at at Bell Labs, which is now kind of another, he's even in the same corridor.
0: Okay, so, so we're talking about, Self-driving cars, and that's real world, physical world, and there is actually also a lot of impact on what we do in the digital world, on our real lives, right? And curious how you see the future of social media as AI becomes ever more capable. How do you envision that will shape social media?
1: The role of social media is to connect people with each other, right? Raise cultural barriers, get people to understand each other better. I know there is some belief among a lot of people that social media. Is the cause of polarization political polarization for example or the dissemination of conspiracy theories but that's actually not true in the sense that first of all even if it were true it would be sort of you know seeing negative effects and ignoring all the positive effects of social media and there are many but it's probably not true because the polarization is observed only in certain countries like the us and the uk for example but not in other countries that use facebook just just as much or other social media just as much.
0: One could maybe distinguish between causing, which is one thing, and another thing which is providing a fabric that if people are so inclined, makes it easier for them right. to polarize. And it, it seems some of that is, is happening, right? Where it's a fabric where polarization seems easier to happen than if the fabric wasn't so, there.
1: There's a huge difference though, between traditional media, which are one way, and social media, which is two-way. So when some crazy wingnut extremist uh, delivers a message on, you know, some extremist TV network or, or radio, uh, which is one-way, there is no response, there is no feedback, there is nothing to, to tell, you know, the the audience uh, this is this is BS or this is wrong, this is factually wrong, you know, blah blah blah. Whereas in a social network, you know, there's some crazy post by a famous person. If you're not, you know, connected, you, you'll you just see that that thing. But if you read the comments, there's going to be a lot of discussions about how this is wrong and how this is, you know, incorrect factually. There's going to be a little thing at the bottom that says that fact is actually disputed by our fact checker. Click on this if you want to know more. The fact that you can respond, the fact that the communication is two-way, is, you know, the essence of democracy and free speech, which you don't have in traditional media. So if I were to look for a cause for polarization, I would look in traditional media that, you know, disseminate conspiracy theories. And, you know, social networks work both ways. Conspiracy theories can disseminate conspiracy theories, but also other people can debunk it just, just as well.
0: One part that maybe stands out to me about social media is that it's in some sense one of the places where AI is the most active in our worlds, right? Self-driving, sure, safer cars. But most of us are on social media and it's, it's driving A lot of our interactions and under the hood these interactions are ai is making decisions right because i cannot see everything well i don't want to see everything because that's why facebook for example built the news feed i would i would find it too boring to see everything some people post and then it, it helps decide what i'm interested in and it seems like those decisions as an AI becomes better, I mean, there are all these stories about AIs building paperclips, right? And it's like, okay, if you ask an AI to build clips, it's going to turn the whole world into a paperclip factory. And in some sense, it seems this is, in, in some ways, sometimes a microcosm of the same idea. When you ask the AI to do something, for example, we want people to spend more time on Facebook, or maybe we want them to click on more ads, or maybe some other objective, whatever the objective is, some objectives get set by somebody. And if it's not exactly right and the AI is really good, these things can get out of control, right? And so I'm yes. curious about your thoughts on, on those things. Even just a simple thing of, should we really be spending maximal time behind our computer, right? Is that really the, the goal?
1: I probably spend, you know, more time on social networks than a lot of people, because I use it as a platform, essentially for disseminating a lot of communication about science, and and but also about society and politics and all kinds of stuff, right? But to respond to your question directly, so there is this myth uh, somehow that, The ranking algorithms that Facebook uses for your newsfeed reinforces the stuff that you like, and therefore kind of creates information bubble. This may have been true in two thousand fourteen. It's not true anymore. So there were some major, like, fundamental changes in the way Facebook operates or the newsfeed ranking operates around two thousand seventeen. That you know, basically completely changes that thing. And people sort of remember the old Facebook and they say, oh, this is why, you know, Facebook is polarizing the world, but it's not actually.
0: It's still very hard, no? In that you must still be setting some objective behind the scenes. It's now a a better chosen objective or in some way, but fully optimizing an objective is always risky.
1: I mean, it's not risky, it's complicated. I mean, It's not as complicated as designing a system from scratch. Designing a system, designing an objective function that the system will will maximize is easier than designing the system itself, right, Uh, first of all. And it used to be that the newsfeed ranking system was just designed, there was no machine learning in it, you know, back in 2014 or something, 13. Uh, Then there was a little bit of machine learning in it, and now, you know, there's there's a lot of machine learning in it, but there's a lot of things also, the, the criteria that are being optimized have changed. So it's not maximizing the time that you spend. It's not maximizing engagement or whatever. The ultimate objective is sort of meaningful interaction. So people have to be happy about the time that they spend on Facebook and must have the feeling that they're not wasting their time. Because if you don't try to maximize this objective, people eventually are going to get bored and just do something else, right? They're not going to be on Facebook anymore. That's the ultimate criterion. Now, this is not a criterion that's really easy to measure, so you have to use proxies for that. And that's, that's where it becomes complicated. We're very familiar with this in machine learning, right? We do this all the time. We replace the actual objective function we want to optimize by a proxy substitute that is easier to optimize, but uh, and can be computed,
0: right? Yeah, I actually do wonder, maybe reinforcement learning could play a role here because you could actually learn people and they could give feedback whether something was meaningful or not, whereas they might not be able to construct the meaningfulness themselves. So there the, the might be there might be some opportunities there.
1: Oh, absolutely. No, I mean there is a lot of you know reinforcement-like learning in there, uh, which is you know particularly there's also causal inference. So there's a lot of like feedback loops, right? If you if you show something to someone, you know they're more likely to interact with it. than, so you have exploration exploitation and things like this.
0: Switching gears for a moment, but on the same topic, this is also the kind of thing where as a scientist we used to be in our own world, but now the things you build actually affect things in the world. And so to which extent do you essentially think about, hey, what is even the Facebook algorithm? What is it even optimizing? And are those things on, on your mind as an AI researcher at Facebook to, to really think about how it is being used beyond just building the next technology?
1: Right. So it's something that you know, we, I am interested in as a, with a, personal, as a personal interest, but I'm, I'm not actually working on this for the, co- for the company. And basically, no one at Fair is. We develop basic machine learning and AI technology, and image recognition, and natural language understanding, translation, all that stuff, right? And some more core machine learning techniques, as well as tools and things like this. And then it's in the hands of the people actually designing the products to figure out like what are the good objectives, what are the you know things like that. And it's you know somewhat removed from what we are doing. You know, of course, we can interact with them. We can provide advice. We can you know give ideas about like new ways of. Uh, You know, assessing the reliability of a post, for example, you know, to figure out like how to rank it. But this is really completely outside of our of our purview. But of course, you know, we have a responsibility if we have uh, kind of you know good ways of of helping with this to to actually do it.
0: What if you're not sure that the people who set the objectives are setting the right objectives, do do you want to send them that better, more perfect optimizer?
1: Well, if it's something that you know about. So there's stories like that about like, you know, some kind of weird causal feedback loop in the, you know. Like ad placement or something like this, right? And you know, there might be uh, an expert at Fair who knows something about causal inference, who realizes that might be a problem. So that person might start, you know, talking to the people doing ad placement and, and say, like, you know, you may not realize it, but you have an issue here that, you know, you, the thing you're measuring is not the right thing, actually, because of this causal loop. And so if you were able to do like, you know, causal inference, you would you would be able to kind of tell apart, you know, what really matters and what variable you can influence that are, you know, causally influence the stuff you care about. So, I mean, there's all kinds of things like this that, uh, you know, there are technologies that were developed at FAIR that are used, you know, just about everywhere in the company uh, for things that are really important. So, there's a, a piece of um, technology which is actually completely open source called FICE. That means Facebook AI a Similarity Search. That was developed at, uh, the, at FAIR in Paris, mostly by, uh, Matthias Douze and Hervé Gégoût and Jeff Johnson. And it's basically, you know, it's not kind of the traditional type of AI that you think of like deep learning, but it's, it's basically a very, very, very fast nearest neighbor search system. So here is a, a billion objects, vectors, and here is one object. Give me the 1,000 among this billion that is closest to this to this one in, I don't know, a few microseconds. This can actually be done. This is incredibly useful because... You have, you know, some extremist group posting a video or a photo of some, you know, propaganda piece. And then you have all kinds of sympathizers, you know, it's taken down, but there's all kinds of sympathizers basically modifying this video and then reposting it. And you have to detect approximate copies of it. There's blacklists, there's whitelists, you know, there's things, and you have to do this for everything that people post. This is you know, hundreds of billions of, of things per day, and you have to, you know, check against kind of, you know, blacklisted content and all that stuff. This is the kind of stuff that, that needs to be done. I mean, there's incredible technology behind it. You know, people don't realize like how much technology is behind a service like Facebook.
0: The amount of AI happening behind the scenes is enormous. And there is people in the loop. And what, what I'm curious about is, how do you see kind of longer term, the synergy between AI and humans? And maybe especially also how, how you might see something like a home robot or something like that emerge and how do humans and robots go together? Right.
1: One of the big kind of dream of both AI researchers and a lot of companies is an intelligent virtual assistant that, you know, can help you in your daily lives and you can, you know, ask any question and keeps you out of trouble and, you know, organizes your information and your, your flow of information, your email, whatever means of communication, you know, it displays stuff in your augmented reality glasses, you know, wherever you go, uh, tells you the name of the people you're seeing, whose name you don't remember, you know, I mean, so all, all the stuff, right? I mean, uh, many of us have seen the, this movie, Her, right? You've seen that movie, Spike Jonze movie? It's actually not a bad depiction of what a truly intelligent virtual assistant, you know, might look like in the, in the future, you know, I'm not clear about the whole love story and everything, but But that is is not necessarily a bad depiction. And this is something that a lot of people have have in mind. And so there's going to be a future where, you know, people are going to wear augmented reality glasses and they're going to have, you know, intelligent virtual assistants that help them in their daily lives and they're, they're going to be based on AI. And so before that happens, we need AI that has common sense, that can hold a dialogue, that knows how the world works, that, you know, kind of understands everything about us. And there's going to be, there's going to be our own personal assistant, just specific to us. We're going to train that assistant to work for us, right? Okay, It's going to be our, our kind of specific to... Uh, each each of us individually so that's kind of you know in my opinion the, the future and then there's the physical embodiment of this which is you know either you know domestic robots that you know do everything in our houses and and you know our cars that drive themselves and things like this and the question is whether the the virtual personality of those virtual assistant is going to kind of migrate from our domestic robot to our you know AR glasses to a car or whether it's going to be a different personality every time. That's kind of uh, a question. But, you know, we're very far from having the technology to be able to do those things. This is not going to happen, you know, it's going to you know, take at least a couple of decades, if not more.
0: As I think about the future and what AI itself will look like in the future, the thing under the hood, the thing that would be driving a, the robot brain effectively, or the digital brain in our computer. Recently, Jeff Hinton, who, of course, you're great friends with and have known for a long time, Um, one of the other pioneers of, of deep learning. He said, I think deep learning can go all the way. We won't need a fundamentally new paradigm. Deep learning is not today's deep learning. We'll need more breakthroughs within this realm of deep learning, but we don't need a completely different thing. What are your thoughts on that?
1: So my version of that statement, which I think is pretty much what Jeff means as well, is that the, the basic idea of deep learning is that you, you construct a machine by assembling parameterized functional block. I'm using a technical term here, but uh, but bear with me for a minute. And and then you you train it from example end to end using using a what's called a gradient-based technique. So Uh, a technique that can, you know, estimate in which direction you have to move all the adjustable parameters to get the answer you want. You know, whether the learning is supervised reinforcement or unsupervised self-supervised doesn't matter. Maybe all of it at the same time. This idea that you build a machine by assembling those blocks and you train it using gradient-based methods is here to stay, okay? So whatever solution AI is going to, to be even 20, 30, 50 years from now, is probably going to have this idea as, a comp- as, as an essential component. That doesn't mean that whatever we have today is sufficient. Like, we don't know how to do self-supervised learning that deals with uncertainty, for example. This is something we need to solve, and it's probably going to be part of the solution. The basic idea of deep learning is here to stay. I don't see it disappearing. So this is my opinion, but it's also, I think, my interpretation of what Jeff says. He says, you know, wh- whatever we do in the future, whatever I system we're going to build, this basic idea of deep learning is going to be part of the solution.
0: It's pretty wild, definitely when I started my PhD uh, in 2002, I would not have imagined that AI researchers would get called up by the CEOs of the world's biggest companies and be asked any questions about anything. And there you are being called up by Elon Musk, arguably the most visible CEO in in the world these days. And Jensen Wang of Nvidia, asking you the same question within a couple of weeks time. I think that's just amazing. But given that you're also, also working on this, we know Elon said there will be Tesla fully self-driving taxis by the end of 2020. Well, it's 2021. That didn't happen. That was uh, optimistic.
1: Well, none of us in the business believe that, right?
0: Well, I don't even know if he believed it, um, but he did set it as a goal at, at the very least. They tried. There was
1: a, a dinner organized by Mark at his place with Elon and, and Shreve and a few other people to basically discuss with Elon, like, what is, you know, that's at the time that we we were saying we should regulate AI because it's going to kill us all, right? He had this period, right? And Mark was kind of concerned by that and really wanted to get the idea of why he was thinking this. And also kind of, we were kind of hoping to kind of change his mind about it because we didn't think that that was really the case. And it was pretty clear to us that he was very optimistic about the speed of progress, that he thought, you know, I think he had bought the original, you know, marketing pitch or, or sales pitch from you know, DeepMind and various other companies that said, oh, we're going to have AGI within five years. And it didn't happen. I mean, we're now like six years after that, and we're still you know, nowhere close to human-level AI or, or even cat-level AI, for that matter. I don't think AGI exists. I, I don't believe in the concept of AGI. Because I think human intelligence is actually very specialized. So I don't think general intelligence is something we should be talking about.
0: I think AGI is different from human level intelligence. Those are so AGI stands for artificial general intelligence. And a lot of people associate that with the notion that AI becomes as smart as humans. And then because it has more compute power, it'll quickly exceed the capabilities of humans. The brain is limited. It's only so much energy you can do compute in your head. And the AI can use the entire world of compute in principle, right? But you're saying agi artificial general intelligence and human level intelligence are very different things
1: human intelligence is very specialized we don't like to think of ourselves as being so specialized but we are
0: i see so you think of us as very very specialized some people would say we're very flexible though
1: we're flexible we're flexible but we are specialized here is a way how we are specialized there's a lot of things that computers do much much better than humans And so it must be the case that humans are not very good at those things. Like, let's take the example of chess and Go playing, or poker, for that matter, where, you know, machines, uh, you know, now overtake humans in all of those games. There was this idea somehow before, you know, good Go players that uh, humans were very close to an ideal player, maybe to God, right? Uh, Like two or three stones handicap or something like this. It turns out, no, humans are absolutely terrible at Go. Uh, machines are like so much better than humans and so you know we thought of ourselves as as being almost kind of ideal and divine we just suck at go we are horrible and, and so they, there are many things like this where, where humans really are bad
0: but there's also this notion i would say that humans can adjust and i think that's what a lot of people think about when they think about artificial general intelligence this notion that humans can learn new skills they...
1: yep learning is part of intelligence
0: maybe there's a board game you've never seen before and somebody explains it to you and you now know how to play it. You might not be the world's best player, but you understand the rules and, and you, you can take joy in it and become better over time and, and enjoy that experience. And, and I think this flexibility of learning something new is, is quite special.
1: Yeah, but it's, it's limited. It's limited flexibility. So, so let me take an example. If, uh, it's a well-known experiment that was you know, carried out by a few people, I think at MIT, where you wear glasses that have a prism in them so that the uh, image you receive in your eyes is, is flipped okay so you see the world upside down and you can adapt to this very quickly i mean in the space of a couple of weeks it's now natural for you to wear those glasses and when you remove the glass all of a sudden now the world looks upside down okay you readapt to it much quicker so there is adaptation in that sense but let's imagine another experiment where through some process fiber optic or electronics the glasses you're wearing. Or the goggles do a random permutation of the pixels in the image okay a fixed permutation but but random a complete scramble will your visual cortex be able to adapt to this and the answer is probably no you might be able to recognize a few things you know very low resolution and things like this but it's going to be a complete mess and the organization of your visual cortex is such that there is no way you can catch up so okay maybe it's an extreme example but it shows that we're not general
0: when we're children we actually learn a lot And maybe a lot of that learning is in our brain consolidating the, some sense, geometric structure of the world. And so if you now scramble an image, we can't make sense of it anymore because we've been trained to expect a certain structure.
1: This is not training. Uh, You know, even if you do this with two children, which would be a horrible thing to do, um, uh, you're (laughs) ethical. I don't think children can adapt to it either.
0: So it might even be evolutionary. It might evolutionarily be in our brain that we have certain structure.
1: The reason for this is the reason why you know I started working with convolutional nets, right? So so convolutional net is a particular type of neural network whose architecture is inspired by that of the visual cortex and the characteristic of it is that a neuron in the early layers of a convolutional net is influenced by a small area in the image. This is called local local connections or local receptive fields. This works if nearby pixels are correlated. So if the pixels are organized as in a regular image there is an advantage to having this local processing. But if you scramble the pixels in a random permutation, you break this correlation and your local feature detectors basically are useless. It's the hardwired architecture of the visual context that will prevent you from being able to do vision with scrambled pixels.
0: When you think about neural networks, most people will easily think about the brain because don't we have neurons in our brains? And our brain also has this general capability of reasoning about many, many things. So maybe you think, yes, neural networks should be good. Can you say a little bit about how the neural networks that, we're, that you are building, other people are building, relate to our brain.
1: So uh, they relate to our brain in the way that uh, you know, airplanes relate to birds. So uh, birds and airplanes use the same basic principle for flight. Uh, they both have wings. They use very, very different ways of propelling themselves to air, but they use the same principle to generate lift from, you know, by propelling themselves to, through air. So it's a bit the same thing right the The general kind of idea between neural nets and 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 the brain is kind of the same it's this idea of lots of very simple elements that are connected with each other. you know whatever behavior comes out of it is kind of an emergent behavior that comes from the complexity of the of the network, and the way those systems learn is by changing the efficacy of the connections between those those nodes right so that's the general uh, idea now if you dig a little deeper than this the analogy stops so the same way airplanes don't flap their wings and don't have muscles you know those neural nets don't work at all like the neurons in the brain in fact some people say we shouldn't call them neurons at all and the the type of learning that we are able to reproduce in machines is very different from the type of learning that we are observing in biology so the type of learning I described before, where you, you show an image to the machine and you tell it the answer, and then you, the machine adjusts itself to get the answer closer to what you want, that's called supervised learning. And it works really well if you have lots of data. So you want to translate one language into another, you collect millions of sentences that have been translated from one language to another, and you just train the machine to kind of do that. And speech recognition is the same. You can have tens of thousands of hours of transcribed speech. Uh, image recognition, you know, you can have millions of, uh, of images but it only works for things for which it's, you know, feasible to collect that much data. And there's a lot of situations where it's not feasible. Like, you know, you want to identify uh, tumors in certain medical images and you just don't have that many of them because perhaps the disease is rare and it's very different every time it shows up. So uh, there are a lot of situations for which it's just not feasible.
0: But also you refer to this notion of supervised learning. What does that mean exactly to be supervised learning?
1: So supervised means that you show the system an input, let's say an image, and you tell it what the correct answer is, and it adjusts itself so that it produces the correct answer. Then there is there are other there are two other types of learning. Uh, one that has become quite popular in the last few years, and and you, Peter, has you know have been working on this since you were doing your PhD, called uh, reinforcement learning. So, I'm, <laughs> and I'm going to teach you about that. But the difference is that you don't tell the machine what the correct answer is. You only tell it whether the answer it produced was, was good or bad. So if the set of answers is really large, the machine has to basically kind of try many things before it figures out the correct answer. This is very, very good for training a machine to, to play games, for example. But it's very inefficient in the sense that it takes a very, very long time for a machine to learn anything useful, like training a robot to you know, grab something or to, or to drive a car. You know, it would take too long if you used the, at least the current brand of uh, reinforcement learning or until...
0: Because it has uh, to stumble upon the solution before it, it learns about it being the solution. It has to discover it's on its own. So it's a very different That's kind right. of learning.
1: It has to do millions and millions of trials and, and also the, what it's going to see next depends on the decision it just took. So that makes things even more complicated. And then there is a third type of learning, which is, the, in my opinion, the primary uh, type of learning that happens in the, in the brain, uh, in animals and humans, And I call it self-supervised learning. People call it lots of different ways, but it's basically a type of learning where the learning system, whether it's a machine or or biology, basically learns to represent the input without learning a particular task. It just learns the general organization of the world, if you want. If the machine can train itself to do this, then then learning a particular task can build on top of those representations learned by the, the system, just by observation. So, you know, babies, human babies, and this is true for most animals, you know, learn how the world works in the first few months of life by essentially by observation. And most of what we learn in our life, we learn in the first few months of, of our lives. We, we get the impression that, you know, everything we learn, we learn in school and to our parents and, you know, at university by reading books. But no, actually, the, most of the basic things that we learn about the world. We learned in the first you know maybe nine months of life
0: it's a lot more relaxed version of learning in those first few months is, is my impression if i can remember anything of it it feels learning in school is much uh, harder work any way we can extend this kind of early childhood learning process a bit longer and keep learning at that pace well yeah
1: i mean at that at that time your your brain is uh you know very malleable and a big chunk of your your energy is devoted to you know everything is new in the world, right? When you're a baby, everything is surprising. You can only take a few hours of this a day, and you have to sleep on it to kind of reorganize your brain. You know every time because it's completely overwhelming. But you know perhaps one principle that, that is um, is used by by biology to to learn how the world works is through prediction. So there, there's a lot of you know internal structure about the world that we learn by training yourself to predict lots of things that we can't directly observe. You know just now you you can't see the back of my head, but you have a pretty good idea what it looks like because you've seen a lot of people and you know, uh, et cetera. You, know, you can't predict if, you know, if I'm gonna move my, uh, my head to the right or to the left like, you know, in a second, but you can predict that my head is not gonna jump so suddenly 30 centimeters to the, to the left, or it's not gonna be upside down just, just all of a sudden because you, you know the constraints of the physical world. Uh, you know that if I hold an object and I, I let it go, it's gonna fall, right? Babies learn this around the age of nine months. They learn about the fact that unsupported objects fall because of gravity around the age of nine months. It takes them all this time to figure out the physics, if you want, of uh, intuitive physics of the world.
0: So we're learning Uh, fast, but maybe maybe not that fast either.
1: Once you've done this, you turn 16 or even earlier than that, and you now need to learn to ride a bike. And you can basically learn that in half an hour, you know, with just a few trials without hurting yourself too much. You want to learn to drive you can drive pretty well with about 15 hours of training for most people without ever crashing we can't do this today if we could solve that problem today then we would have level five autonomous driving we would have you know cars driving themselves uh without crashing anywhere but we don't we really don't know how to do it
0: so so this reminds me actually of something you're you're very well (laughs) aware of something called like cake of course and it reminds me of this was Neurips 2016. You gave the opening keynote, kicking off the conference. This is for context. This is the main machine learning conference, the biggest one. Pretty much everybody who works in machine learning goes there to share their work and see what other people have been up to and exchange ideas, get new ideas. And you kicked off the conference with the invited keynote where you introduced this concept of locaic. And as, as I was listening, I was sitting in, in your audience at the time, um, was listening to it, it occurred to me that in some sense, even though my own path, which has been more robotics driven and your path has been more pure machine learning driven, though we've both touched on, on both sides quite a bit, that in some sense, what you were presenting was the future of robotics, maybe not the future that we're going to get right away tomorrow, but the kind of longer term like what the most capable robots of the future might look like on the inside, how their brain gets built. So can you maybe say a little bit about this, this idea and and how, how it could play into robotics? Right, so it's a, it's a
1: metaphor that I used because I, I was seeing a lot of excitement for deep learning in the community and deep learning at the time was, you know, 95% supervised learning. And there was a lot of mounting excitement in reinforcement learning. And there were some people who said, who thought maybe, perhaps naively, or perhaps they had some good idea that you know, by scaling up supervised learning, collecting more data, having bigger machines, or by scaling up reinforcement learning, we were going to you know, be able to create intelligent machines. And I was really convinced that that could not possibly work, that the, the way forward to really build intelligent machines was to get machines to learn how the world works and perhaps acquire some sort of common sense. And it could not be done through supervised learning and reinforcement learning alone because the amount of feedback information you give the machine in supervised learning and reinforcement learning is very, very weak. It's very small, right? You know, when you train supervised uh, supervised machine to recognize images, you know, you tell it it's a car, it's an airplane, it's a person, it's a table, it's a chair. You give it just a a few bits of information at every sample. Uh, So the amount of stuff that the system learns is limited by, you know, how much information is in the label, which is fed by humans, and it's li- li- very limited. In reinforcement learning, it's even worse, right? The machine only gets a single number. Every time you try something, you, you're doing good, you're doing bad. So the amount of trials the machine has to do is just enormous. Uh, so if you want you know, learning to be efficient, the machine has to basically figure out how the world works by itself. And so my analogy was, if intelligence is a, is a cake, the reinforcement learning has so little information you give to the machine that that's going to be just the cherry on the cake and reinforcement learning is the is the icing on the cake but the bulk of the cake is self-supervised learning or whatever it is that humans and animals uh, are doing the joke i usually say is that you know a house cat has more common sense than the most intelligent of all our uh, AI, AI systems. And it's really true.
0: How, how can we do self-supervised learning and make our robots more naturally smart?
1: That's the question you tell me. Um,
0: <laughs> I see, it's not solved yet.
1: Yeah, no, it's completely unsolved. Uh, I mean, there is, there's been very interesting advances in that direction over the last five years. And there's been some success in some domains. So for example, the most successful natural language understanding systems today, the most successful translation systems, so basically, text—you know—text processing, text understanding are very heavily based on self-supervised learning, and it's self-supervised learning of the type that I was telling you about earlier, where you take a segment of text extracted from a book or whatever, or Wikipedia article, a website. You remove some of the words, and you train a gigantic neural net to predict the words that are missing. In the process of doing so, the system learns to represent language, and it learns automatically to basically represent. A combination of uh, syntax and semantics it it has to understand like if i if I tell you a sentence you know the blank chases the mouse in the kitchen you can you can probably tell what blank is right and that's because you know you know how the world works right you know that uh, you know cats chase mice and and you know and cats are in inside you know our houses and stuff like that right if I say the you know the blank uh, uh, chases the gazelle in the savannah, you can probably also tell what it is at least within, you know, within some region, by training a machine to predict missing information and telling it after a while, well, this, this is the word that you know, was supposed to be there, the machine basically learns to represent language. And how, how is that different from supervised
0: learning then? Aren't you supervising it by, by having the text that has the completion for the blank?
1: Yes, yeah, so the basic algorithm you use to train the system is a supervised learning algorithm because you're telling the system the correct answer. But the reason why it's called self-supervised is that this information does not come from someone who has labeled the data manually. It comes from the input itself, right? So you take, a, you take an input, you corrupt it, and then you tell the system, recover the original uh, input. This, by the way, applies to not just text, but you can apply this to speech and images. It doesn't work as well in images. But it works astonishingly well in natural language processing to the extent that it completely revolutionized the way people do uh, natural language uh, understanding and translation about two years ago. Every system now that you use, um, whenever you go to Google or Facebook, the translation, the system that ranks the items that you see, either search items or search results or, or your newsfeed, this is all done by this you know natural language understanding system that basically uh, do this you can ask a question to google google will answer right and that's based on all of this is based on this uh, this kind of technique so there's been this enormous success of self-supervised learning in the context of natural language understanding and it has not yet completely translated in other domains like speech recognition or image recognition although getting there
0: why do you think that is why do you think it works better in language processing so far and not as valued than the other domains.
1: Okay, I'm going to say something that's going to be very controversial, but it's because language is simpler. We like to think as, as humans, you know, we like to think of, of of ourselves as humans as the only species that has you know complex language and and it's you know intimately linked with intelligence and, and all that stuff, right? But language is basically an epiphenomenon of, uh, of of intelligence. It's a lot of animals who don't have language that are almost as intelligent as we are like orangutans. Uh, orangutans don't, inter- don't have language because they are solitary animals. They're not social animals. They're almost as smart as we are. I mean, on the scale of, of smartness, right? Uh, they're very close to us. So, you know, language in this context, in this particular context of prediction, language is simpler because the prediction you're making is you're predicting a missing word and you can never predict the exact word, right? So the example I said, I said, you know, the blank chases the mouse in the, in the kitchen. It's basically only one possibility. It's going to be a cat, uh, you know, maybe kitten or something. Uh, But if I say the blank chases the blank in the blank, there's many, many possibilities of what animal where, you know, which predator and prey, right? And so you can't, so the system cannot make an exact prediction, but what it can do is that it can make a probabilistic prediction. So it gives you essentially a score for every possible words in the dictionary. There's maybe a hundred thousand words in the English dictionary. You have this giant, list of numbers that indicate kind of a score for every possible word. What is the chance that this word appears here? And so we have an easy way of representing the uncertainty in the prediction by a big list of numbers, essentially. But what if I do something else? If, what if I train the system where I show it a little segment of video and I ask it, tell me what's happening next, like draw the frames in the videos that are going to happen next as a consequence, you know, as that, that can follow this. There, there's an infinite number of possibilities. And an image is a very complex object by itself, but a sequence of of video frames is incredibly complicated. We don't know how to represent the uncertainty in the prediction in that context. We can have a big list of numbers that gives us a score for every possible image that follow a particular frame. So the complexity, and I'm getting into sort of a technical issue here, but this is really what we're facing. We do not know how to represent uncertainty in sort of complex high-dimensional uh, domains like like images, video, audio, to some extent. So we have to invent other techniques. And there are a few that are really promising.
0: It also sounds like what you're putting out there then is a notion that if somebody can crack this, if somebody can actually represent possible futures in the video sense, meaning not in their own head, but somehow train a neural network to be able to do that, that neural network would maybe have some notion of common sense at least some kind of notion of common sense and, and be able to learn other things much more quickly.
1: Absolutely, because that system would be able to just watch the spectacle of the world and then you know, train itself to predict what's going to happen next and then understand that you know, if, I, if an object is not supported, it's going to fall. But here is the complexity. If I put this pen on my hand, and I let it go. You can you can predict that the pen is going to fall, right? But you can't predict in which direction. And every time I repeat the experiment, it falls in a different direction. So that's the complexity of prediction, which is that you know you don't want the machine to predict a particular image. You want it to predict you know the pen is going to fall, but I can't tell you in which direction. How do you represent this? Uh, that's what we don't know how to do.
0: It Seems we as humans represent that though, because when I see the pen on your hand and it falls, I'm not too surprised, even though I can't predict which direction is going to fall. I'm- not surprised that it falls and not surprised that it is in some direction. And yeah, that was a plausible direction. Why not?
1: That's right. In fact, that's exactly how we know that babies you know know something about the world. You show them a scenario that breaks one of those laws of physics and you observe how surprised they are. You measure how long they look at the, the thing, right? So you show a little scenario where you know an object kind of appears to be floating in the air because the support of it is not apparent you know, is hidden somehow, and a six-month baby will kind of look at it for a bit and like not really pay attention. A 10-month baby will go, we go like this, right, <laughs> and, and like stay on it for like a minute because, you know, her model of the world is, is being violated, right? She, she knows that an object is supposed to fall if it's not supported, and here is one that, that flows in the air. That's surprise is, is how we measure whether our model of the world is being violated.
0: We are dropping new interviews every week. So subscribe to the Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI, robotics, and the people bringing them into the real world. So, Jan, we've spoken a lot about your work, your vision, but what I think a lot of our listeners will be really curious about is how you ended up in this world of AI and ultimately even became Mark Zuckerberg's go-to person for AI. How and, and when did a young Jan LeCun decide to become an AI scientist?
1: It's simultaneously simple and complicated okay so you know I, I grew up in the suburbs of Paris in a you know middle class family. My dad was an engineer in the aerospace industry. my mom was a homemaker uh, but my dad was like a really an engineer at heart and he, he taught me he taught me everything basically but you know when I was a kid with him he would you know build Model airplanes. He built his own radio control system. Actually, you know, he taught himself electronics. This is in the in the sixties. I mean, he had built model airplanes, you know, before that, but radio control model airplanes, you know, you couldn't just go out and buy a radio control system. You basically had to build it yourself in the sixties. So he did that. He taught himself electronics. He was a mechanical engineer. Uh, taught himself electronics, and you know, he, you know, and I was like watching this when I was a kid, and I was kind of you know amazed. So I also always had kind of this sort of you know engineering kind of you know virus, basically, <laughs> uh, infecting the family. My my brother also kind of went through the same process. He's actually a research engineer at Google in Paris. <laughs> he doesn't work on machine learning. He works on uh, combinatorial optimizations, optimization guide. But, you know, I got kind of exposed to science and engineering this way. And I was fascinated, even when I was a kid, by, you know, the appearance of intelligence in humans. I was, inte- you know, interested in paleontology for that. And how, how did it happen that, you know humans evolved and became intelligent. Like I was fascinated by that question. And then, you know, what is intelligence and, and things like that. Right. So I was fascinated by physics, you know, by uh, astronomy, by all kinds of stuff. Right. So, you know, I was okay in high school. Um, I was good at, very good at physics. I was okay at math. I wasn't particularly good. I was good. And so, you know, there's kind of a strange type of educational system in France where, if you're really good at math and science, you, you go into one track, you go into those like two years of preparatory school where you just do math and physics, and then you take a, a competition basically a national competition to get into the best engineering schools, which you will know, take three years. I didn't go through this because I really wanted to do engineering from day one and science, And and my math teacher in high school convinced me that I wasn't good enough at math to survive that. I went to an engineering school that you know basically it goes right after high school right and it's a five-year program you do a lot of math and physics and everything and I did like way more math and physics than you know the average student in that school uh, I learned electrical engineering and various other things but while doing this I was interested in this mystery of intelligence you know artificial or not and I stumbled on a book which was the transcript of a debate uh, between uh, Noam Chomsky the linguist and uh, Jean Piaget who is the Swiss developmental psychologist who studied how children learn. So I was, you know, fascinated by this. I, you know, I read this book, and it was kind of a debate where Piaget and Chomsky kind of brought people to argue for their side, and on the side of uh, of uh, Piaget was uh, this guy Seymour Papert, who was a mathematician from MIT. His talk, which was transcribed, was about the perceptron, which was one of the early learning machines from the fifties, and he says. You know the perceptron is a very simple learning machine, but it can learn surprisingly complex concepts when you train it. Even though it's so simple, it's the first time I read about a machine that could learn. I was transfixed. Essentially, I said, "Like this is what I want to do. This is like the, this is the answer." You know, intelligence is so complex; we're never going to be able to engineer it. Uh, it's going to have to build itself by learning. And in fact, I discovered, you know, decades later, that Turing had the same argument. He said, "You know, if you want to build an intelligent machine, you'll be better off." trying to emulate the the mind of a child so that, you know, this child could learn the, the way uh, a human uh, learns. So I always thought learning was going to be part of uh, intelligence. And then when I learned that people had worked on this, you know, I, I decided to basically spend all my spare time kind of studying this. So I went to the, I spent, you know, days at a time in the libraries there was no internet back then right we're talking 1980 i had to you know drive to versailles where inria had this like wonderful library which i get access to they were nice enough to let me in and i would spend you know the entire wednesday afternoon because i didn't have class then kind of looking through the old literature and what i discovered is that the entire literature on this topic stopped in the late 60s around 1969 1970 you couldn't find any paper from the us or europe that talked about perceptron, you know, neural net-like machine learning, you know, after 1969, roughly. And I discovered the reason for this was, or one reason for this, was a book whose title was Perceptron by two authors, Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert. So here was Seymour Papert chanting the, the, singing the praise of the perceptron, but he actually contributed to killing it and basically kind of turning people away from it.
0: How do you kill neural networks with a book?
1: Well, it's a theoretical book that says, you know, here are the limits of those models. You can't, you know, here is what you can do. Here is what you cannot do with those models without, you know, them being ridiculously large or, or, or whatever. And it's a very interesting book that I, I read multiple times right, at, the, at that time. And you know, they were not wrong. It was just that the results were overinterpreted in the sense that some of the problems that that they say perceptrons cannot solve or can only solve with a ridiculous amount of, of resources. First of all, there are problems that may not be that interesting anyway, that you may want to do. There are problems that are essentially sequential, so you might want to use another type of machine to, uh, to solve them. And second of all, the main limitation was the fact that the perceptron basically has a single layer of trainable weights, right? So you can think of the perceptron basically as a single neuron with you know, a bunch of adjustable inputs, and everything else be- before that is fixed. So that's that's a very dire limitation. And what the recent brand of neural nets, you know, from, from the late 80s uh and backpropagation allowed to do was to train neural nets with multiple layers of adjustable weights. And that's by the way, why we call this deep learning. It's called deep learning for the simple fact that those neural nets are composed of multiple layers to differentiate them from more classical machine learning where you basically only have one layer that's trainable.
0: But you didn't achieve that right away, right? You're you're sitting in these libraries in, in Versailles, apparently. And reading, reading these books, that, that's still a long path to making neural nets actually work and where we are today. What, what happened next?
1: Right. So I was like a, you know, a sophomore or, some, or maybe a junior. I mean, it's a it's five-year program in France, right? So I was in third year or something like that. The school I was at called A-C-A-E-S-I-E-E you could do uh, independent studies. So I, I went to see a math professor and I said, like, you know, I'd like to work on this. Like, I don't, you know, I want to, like, do a, a project. And he said, yeah, this, you know, that sounds like, like, like it could be fun. So I did a couple of those. And uh, I was really thankful that this professor kind of uh, helped me. I had access to the, the school's computers, which at the time were kind of rather powerful for undergraduate students. And, and so I started experimenting with sort of various, uh, you know, various learning algorithms. And I, you know, quickly discovered that really what needed to be discovered was a learning method to train those multilayer neural nets. This is what people didn't find in the 60s. This is what caused the failure, if you want, of the entire field. And that's what needed to be unlocked, essentially. And I, I look for all kinds of ideas there. There are people who are working on this in various places in the Eastern Europe, in Japan, uh, etc. And I kind of stumbled on this idea that perhaps if you were able to sort of propagate signals backwards to tell every neuron, like, here is what I need from you to get the correct answer that could work. And I came up with some sort of really intuitive rule to do this that we would now call target prop. And then I talked to one of my friends um, who was doing uh, a PhD in optimal control. And he was working on planning, and he told me about this technique called the adjoint state method. I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure you know about this because you are a control guy. So this is an algorithm that goes back to the 60s that uh, was used, for example, by NASA to compute uh, trajectories for rockets, things like that. And it's based on the idea that if you want to shoot a rocket and you want it to meet the space station, you start by kind of shooting it and it's going to miss the space station. So you compute kind of a distance between those two things, and you kind of adjust the, the controls, the nozzle, the thrust, you know, the direction, at every time step so that this it gets closer and you do this by basically propagating a signal backward in time this is the, all done on a computer right this is the back propagation this is the, the same idea it's the same mathematics that we're using to train a neural net
0: and so that's amazing so you're working on this back in france how do you end up in the us
1: okay so i finished my uh, engineering degree my specialty was uh VLSI design by the way Chip design. As I told you, it, it took a lot of like, physics and also actually optimal control stuff. And I stumbled on another book, which was about uh, self-organization and something called automata network. And I discovered that there is a small independent lab in Paris composed of academics who had positions in universities, but decided to kind of get together in this like little informal organization, uh, called Laboratoire de Dynamique des Réseaux. So this means the Laboratory for Network Dynamics. And they were kind of studying those emergent properties of large networks of of elementary kind of simple objects, you know, like cellular automata and things like that. I just called them up, cold call. said, like, you know, I'm interested in working on neural nets and stuff. Like, you know, can I just hang out? And one of them says, oh, you should sign up for a graduate program right now because the deadline is, like, you know, three days from now. (laughs) So... Or something like that. Or you're, you're too late, but like I can get you in anyway. So I registered to this graduate program, which was sort of a weird thing because. He- in France, you have to do like a, like a pre-PhD before you do the PhD. So this was the pre-PhD. And that's how I learned to, to do research because, you know, otherwise I was kind of isolated. But no one in that lab was working on neural nets. They were working on a sort of other type of, of things. I had funding from my, uh, like a scholarship from my engineering school. Uh, so I didn't need any, uh, any support. But I needed someone to be my official advisor to at least sign the paper. So one of the members of this uh, lab, Maurice Milgram I come to him and I said, like, you know, you are the one full professor who can actually take me as a student would you would you take me he says like i have no idea what you're working on i can't help you at all with anything technical but you you seem smart enough and i'll sign the papers
0: so you got absolute freedom in some sense
1: freedom but also you know a bit of uh, i was kind of you know out in the out in the cold a little bit
0: how do you connect with the more general research world then
1: Right. So one thing that, you know, from the first month, uh, I sort of started hanging out with uh, people there. So there was a, a scientist called Françoise Soulier-Fogelman, and she kind of started to get interested in neural net pretty early on, but she connected me with the, the, the wider community that was already working on this. In particular, she gave me a preprint of two things. One, which was the paper on hubfield networks. And the second one was the paper from 1983 by Hinton and Shenovsky on Boltzmann machines. And I look at this paper and, you know, back then, you know, those papers were like published in obscure conferences. I think the Boston Machine paper was published at C- either CVPR or AAAI or one of those things. But, you know, you couldn't get those unless you went to the conference and brought the, you know, the proceedings back, right? So they got a preprint somehow, you know, they they asked Hinton or whatever and they got they got a, a photocopy of it. There was no email either, okay? <laughs> so so it was all by, you know, physical mail. And I look at this paper and they talk encrypted way they talk about essentially the multi-layer training problem okay so they the bolson machine algorithm was kind of the first credible solution to training neural nets that had so-called hidden units basically units that are neither inputs nor outputs but are somewhere in the middle and i thought like this is exactly what the kind of stuff you know i'm interested in i absolutely need to talk to these people uh Senofsky and hinton like they are my heroes now okay and they are in the us and i'm in france and uh how do i do that it so happened that Francoise and a few other people organized a workshop in 1985 in France, where they invited a lot of uh, you know, physicists who were really interested in neural nets at the time. There was a lot of uh, theoretical connections with solid uh, state physics or, or condensed matter physics, like spin glasses and stuff, because of, of Hubfield. And so they invited a lot of different people. In particular, they invited uh, Terry Sinofsky. So unfortunately, Terry wasn't here for my talk. I was talking about this uh, kind of target prop algorithm. In completely broken English, I was absolutely terrified when I gave my talk because my English was so bad, and also I knew people would not understand what I was saying. You know, both for the language, because of the language, and because of what I was talking about. So he wasn't there for my talk, but he came, and gave a talk about boson machines, and then I cornered him one of the afternoon and tried to explain to him what I was working on. Uh, he was working on NetTalk at the time, which was sort of one of the first uh, big demonstration of what Backprop could do. But Backprop was not published yet; nobody had heard of it. Except him because he was friend with with Jeff Hinton, and so he went back to the US and he he told Jeff, who was working on Backprop also preparing the paper, he told him there's a kid in France who is working on the same stuff we're doing. And then a few months later, another conference uh, takes place in France in summer 1985, where Jeff Hinton now is a keynote speaker, where he talks about boson machines. So you know by that time, neural nets were starting to get like a little hot, and boson machines were kind of seen as sort of a big thing. So Uh, So he gives his keynote, and then he's surrounded by 50 people, and I can't get anywhere close to him.
0: Sounds like you today, except 50 would be uh, a few (laughs) hundred.
1: (laughs) I mean, you know, Jeff was pretty young at the time. He was like, you know, he was not 40, right? He was like 37 or something. So anyway, he turned to the organizer. I was kind of far away, right? And he, he tells the organizer... Do so, you know a guy called Yann LeCun? And I, get, I go, I'm here!
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> basically, he had read my paper in the proceedings, which was in you know, French, and kind of figured out this was about multi-layer nets and backprop-like things. And so we said, like, you know, let's, get, let's get lunch together tomorrow. And, and we basically... You know, then he told me he was working on backprop, and I, I told him, well, that's what I'm working on too. And we were kind of basically completing each other's sentences. Um, so this clicked like you know immediately. He said, like I'm organizing a summer school next summer, nineteen eighty six at CMU. He was still at CMU at the time, said, like, I'll invite you there. And that's where I met the entire community, right? So this was the first connection in summer school. You know, Michael Jordan was there, and Terry and Jay McClelland, and um, I mean a lot of senior people now that you see in the machine learning community actually were were there at that uh, summer school.
0: Now all these people are your longtime friends, but then you're a young researcher and you show up and all these people are names you've seen, but you've never met them before. How how was that? I mean, I can only imagine it's a bit intimidating.
1: Well, it is, yeah, but um, particularly intimidating because my English was so bad. And so, in fact, my English was so bad, this is one of the reasons I connected with Mike Mike Jordan uh, because his French is very good. His French was completely fluent and he's kind of a bit of a Francophile. So um, we connected, you know, immediately and so we became fast friends.
0: I think you got a good part of it. Uh, you, you got to coming to CMU and meeting Jeff Hinton and everybody there, which I think got... Uh... Oh, yeah, I
1: met Jeff Hinton, you know, earlier earlier in France. What happened is, I, in 1985, in this first meeting in the French Alps that was organized by the member of this lab that I belong to, where all the physicists were, and where I met Terry Sinovsky, I gave my first talk, and there was a guy in the audience, a young guy who looked like a cowboy from the Arizona. He, he had like a... I mean, he was dressed like... You know, he had like big sideburns, and it was very strange. And and this this guy was very young, but he he was asking very nasty questions to absolutely everyone. Like it was you know this very famous person giving a giving a talk about their major research, and this guy would raise his hand and ask a, a question that would basically destroy the entire talk or or put it in question. And so I turned you know to my, my friend and say, oh, this guy, this guy's, yeah, I mean, they're from Bell Labs, you know, that's, that's what they do at Bell Labs, right? You know, whenever you, you talk about something, you know, someone else, someone has done it at Bell Labs 10 years or earlier or it doesn't work. And so I was kind of terrified by this guy and I give my talk in broken English and there's complete silence in the room uh, because nobody understood what I was saying, except this guy who raised his hand. And I, I literally liquefied in, in place because I was, you know, terrified of him. And he said something nice about my, about my talk. He said, like, you know, I, this is really cool, blah, blah, blah. Not asking a nasty question. So I re-solidified. <laughs> uh, and two years later, they offered me a job. So this guy was this guy's name was John Denker, and he was kind of the person I, I worked most with at at Bell Labs. And the person next to him was Larry Jackal, who was the department head who hired me. He was my boss. He ended up being my boss.
0: In closing, I want to ask you one last question that's a bit different, Jan, which is... Um, one thing I noticed about you is that you um, you engage quite a bit in political discussions, Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. And it's kind of intriguing to me because I think a lot of us scientists, clearly not including you, but a lot of us kind of love science, partially because there is a way to determine the correct answer. And there's a way to determine this, this is now correct. We figured it out. And... In politics, everything's so... There are definitely clearly wrong things, but it's yes. much harder to, to identify the, the clearly one right thing that everybody in the world should agree. This is the, the, the way forward. I mean, that, that, that seems right. to never happen, right? So where do you see that come from in, in your history? And also, how important is it?
1: Uh, very important. Okay, so the thing that gets me riled up in politics... Uh is not you know necessarily ideology, you know classical political ideology, but it's more that you know seeing people suffer for no reason, for people for reasons that are easily avoidable and seeing that they suffer because there are decisions that are made that are completely irrational or that are based on false uh, information or biased information or false facts or bad models of the world and or or self-interest also sometimes, but uh, which is clearly the case in a lot of politicians. but and so my philosophy is that, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an atheist, I'm a rationalist, and I'm a humanist, okay? I'm actually more than a humanist because I think it's not just humans who, are, who deserve, uh, you know, happiness, but also, you know, animals and everything. But I'm not a vegetarian, by the way. But because I'm a rationalist, you know, as a scientist, we have to have at least one corner of our minds that is, is rational, it's completely rational. And when I see political decisions being made for, for example, reasons that are, uh, based on you know religious myths from you know sheep herders that you know lived in the middle east 2000 years ago that end up hurting people in really bad ways i get riled up you know that's completely against my my humanism right i i want to kind of we were talking about objective functions right i want to sort of you know maximize the long term expected value of human welfare and minimize the long term expected value of human suffering and so you know that's kind of a rational objective function I mean, it's, it's an objective function that you may agree or not with. And then what is the rational way of optimizing it? And it has to be based on your model of the world. Like, you know, what is, what is going to be the consequence of taking that decision on the long-term well-being of, uh, of humanity?
0: It seems if you had a really good AI system that could simulate the future, depending on decisions you make, you could actually build a tool that's very powerful to improve the whole human condition how everybody's living
1: that's right so i mean this is you know trying attempting to automate this completely would be like the ultimate technocratic uh, form of government which i, I don't think I, I i subscribe to but i think there is something in this sort of model of, of intelligence you know for an intelligent agent to act whether it's a human or an animal or or a machine there has to be three components three main components or four main components one component is the objective that you want to optimize all humans have this hardwired in our brain there's uh, you know, something at the base of our brain called basal ganglia. And it basically computes how uncomfortable or comfortable we are. This is the thing that tells us you're hungry, you're hurt, you know, you know, someone is pinching you, you're burning or whatever, right? The second component is what in our business, we call a critic. So it's something that tries to predict, and that's, in our prefrontal cortex. It's something that tries to predict in the future, am I going to be comfortable or uncomfortable? What is the future expected value of this objective that You know my brain computes for me then a third component is our model of the world so it's something that predicts what is the world going to do how is the world going to evolve uh, in the future and more importantly how is it going to evolve if i take this action so can i predict the effect on the world of the action i'm taking okay so that's the model of the world and then the the last module which you could call the actor is the the module that given the objective and given the model of the world tries to figure out the best sequence of actions that will optimize your objective given your model of the world. Okay, and robotic systems are based on this, right? You have all those components in, in in robots. Okay, so as a human, particularly a politician, but you know any human, any person, you can be evil or stupid in three different ways. First of all, your objective might be crooked. So your objective, instead of being the overall welfare of humanity, might be just your own self-interest. Okay, that that means you are. Narcissistic, essentially, okay, or sociopath or whatever. Um, so think about your objective. The, the second component is your model of the world. If your model of the world is bad, then, you know, the, the, the prediction of what's going to happen as a consequence of your actions would be wrong. So uh, you're going to say, you know, stupid things like, uh, you know, we want to uh, forbid uh, contraception because it encourages teenage sex. And that's no factually wrong, right? I mean, there is a lot of studies that just show that it's just not true. If you Provide uh, you know free contraception to uh, to teenage, uh, teenagers. You just reduce teenage pregnancy. I mean, it's just good, right? And a lot countries have realized this. The U.S. is kind of not quite yet, and it's because of religious reasons, irrational thought, right? Uh, it hurts people. Uh, and then the third way you can be stupid or evil is you have a good objective, you're a good model of the world, but somehow you cannot find a good sequence of actions that will optimize your objective given your given your model. And then you have some politicians. That are stupid or evil in all three different ways, All three ways, right? They have a bad objective because they're narcissistic. The model of the world is completely wrong. And even then, they cannot actually take a sequence of action that will actually do the stuff they want to do, which to some extent made them less evil than if they were able to.
0: We're talking about humans here, but AI could have the same issues, right? It has the same components and each of these components need, need to work correctly. Otherwise, we, we can't trust it.
1: Well, so there is this idea, this is question of value alignment, right? Can, can you design the ultimate objective of the of the machine in such a way that it never kind of works against the welfare of humanity? And it might be, you know, and people think maybe it's difficult to do this kind of design of this objective function. But then this is something that we are extremely familiar with as humanity. We do this absolutely all the time, designing objective functions to entice humans to do the right thing. We do this when we teach our children to behave properly. We teach them morals. We teach them, you know, to take, to distinguish, you know, good from evil, you know, to behave in society, to etc. Right. So we shape their objective function when we teach them all those things. We do this with laws. So laws are nothing more than shaping the objective function of of humans and entities like corporations, so that whatever they do works for the common good. So this is not something new. This is not something that's new in AI. We've been doing this for thousands of years.
0: Yeah, it seems you need something more than the laws you need some notion that humans are above the law and can tell the AI when (laughs) it's exploiting a loophole. And that is not actually what it's supposed to be doing. Maybe it was not above the law, but above the laws that it poses on the AI. So something something complex has to happen.
1: It's a little too early to like be too riled up about those questions, given that we don't actually have the technology to build machines anywhere close to this yet. But yes, it's a, it's a problem that we are facing, that you're facing when you're building kind of control systems and robots, and you have to design those objectives. And...
0: We face it all the time. You need to tell a robot what to do. You need to give it an objective in today's formalism, and yeah. including it needs to know when it doesn't know and maybe uh, defer to human operator because otherwise it's just gonna be destructive in whatever it's doing. We're back to this problem of representing uncertainty. Yeah, that's definitely one of the big challenges. <laughs> Jan, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have had you. Such a fun conversation, learned a lot. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you so much, Peter, for having me. It's, uh, it was a real pleasure.
0: That's it for today's episode. Uh, Thanks for listening. And a quick reminder to subscribe and rate us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.